he goes along to the Sea of Galilee, and it says that he, he calls out to these people who are fishermen. They're out there in their boats fishing. And he says, come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And we're like, wow, that was really cheesy. Um, I don't know how that worked for them and what it was about Jesus that utterly captured them and made them want to follow him. But, y'all, people, people dropped their nets They left their boats. They literally, like, left the family business behind. It says that John and James, they left their dad in the boat, and they went and followed Jesus. So something about that sales pitch that Jesus gave them was electric, and it was magnetizing, and they went, and they followed him, and they never turned back. They never turned back. They followed him until the end when they turned back. Um, But, you know, what Jesus did is he had them as he would go around and he would do these healings. And it said in the passage before this that he would take the lepers and he would cleanse them and he would make the lame walk and the blind see and all this stuff. And then it said that he would go around teaching in their synagogues and in their holy places and that people were drawn to him. They're captivated by him. It's unlike anything they had ever seen. It was magnetic. And imagine them as they're following him, just asking these questions like, good grief, who are you? What are you doing? How can you do these things? And it's right there that this passage starts. So verse 25 from Matthew chapter 4 down through 512, it says this, And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's the end of God's Word. Uh, many years ago, there was this dramatic movie uh, that came out. It's many years. It's probably 30 years ago now. About the first test pilots to break the sound barrier. And this movie was a chronicle about um, the people, because at that time, they didn't think it was possible to go over that magical mark of 735 miles an hour. No one thought it could be done. There were these imagining of what could happen if it did, that the, the planes would disintegrate or the, uh, the vibrations would cause them to crash. Just all these terrible things. And the movie uh, is a story about people who tried. And as they approached the 735-mile-an-hour barrier, their planes would begin to do just that. They would begin to shake violently, and some of them would just explode in midair. You know, and, and people died, as the, as the movie showed. But what they, what they noticed... What one test pilot noticed who was studying these things was that when the people approached that sound barrier, when they got to like the 734, 735, they noticed something about the controls in these planes. 
they noticed that things started to work backwards in that moment. And so when you're approaching that, you know, normally in a plane, when you pull the stick back, it raises the nose. And if you push the stick forward, it takes the nose down. Well, they began to notice that everything begins to work backward. And so there's this pilot who comes, and he's willing to try it. He's willing to test it. So he gets in his plane, and and he's... The story records him going right up to that point. And at that critical moment, when everything in him was saying, push down, he pulls back. And when he pulls back, instead of it going straight up, it levels out and he continues on and he does it. Now, Chuck Yeager, who is the first man in the world to actually travel through the sound barrier, he looks back at this movie and says, that's not exactly how it happened. It's not exactly right, but hey, we'll give you a pass through Hollywood. Um, but it does, it does give us a very graphic illustration of what Jesus is saying in this passage, in this beginning of this Sermon on the Mount. Because what happens is that Jesus is giving his disciples and then the crowds who, who were kind of assume are present now, and by the end of the sermon there's definitely crowds present. So his disciples, those who are already following him, and then some other people, he's giving them this insight into the new order of the way things are in the world. He's pulling back the curtain on this new humanity that He came to bring forth, on this kingdom that He came to be the king and the ruler of. And Jesus is saying that the things that you thought were going to work this one way are going to work the opposite way. That all of the controls in the world, the things that you're used to working a certain way are now going to begin to work opposite. Things are going to be backwards. They're going to be upside down. And so Jesus has this ministry for three years on earth before He is killed of healing people and of teaching people about this kingdom and about what things are like whenever He is their King. And people join Him and they follow Him even to His death. And they see Him and they join Him doing things like bringing justice to people who have been unjustly treated to bring dignity where there's been depravity and loss of life and to bring healing where there's hurting and sickness. But then Jesus dies, but death doesn't win. He's brought back to life and He ascends back to heaven to be with God. Now imagine that. If you're one of His followers, He dies and you're crushed because you're like, our King just died. This dude who we've seen do all these amazing things just died. But then He's resurrected and you're like, yes! That's coming untrue also. That's backwards, but it's awesome. And then he says, by the way, I've got to go back to heaven to be with my father. No, what are you doing? Why are you leaving again? And he says this. He says, stay where you are. Be patient. Because I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to be with you. Now, we just kind of, if you've been around the church at all, some some of our traditions make a bigger deal about the Holy Spirit than others. But what that means is this, is that from heaven, Jesus is sending a heavenly virus into his people to begin to infect us from the inside. And what it does is it puts these these visions of what things could be like, of this heavenly picture of what things will be like when there's no more sin, and there's no more death and decay, and there's no more depravity. It's literally the things that Jesus was doing while he was on earth And people were drawn to those and attracted to those. Jesus says that when you trust Him, He sends that virus into you called the Holy Spirit. And it gives you reminders of that. 
And so as Christians, some of you know what that feels like when, when there's just times where you can't exactly explain and put into words what's going on inside, but you know it to be true. And that's what Jesus is saying, this Holy Spirit thing is real. And that there's new humanity of these infected people. And He's telling us tonight what that looks like. Of what this kingdom looks like. What happens when you're an infected person. When you've been had by His kingdom and you're brought in. It's upside down and it sounds crazy. And we're going to look at it sounding crazy in these four ways. The low are made high. Those who need are the ones who receive. The help becomes helpers. And the world hates those helpers. So first, the low are made high. Um, And I'm going to look at kind of the first three of the Beatitudes as they're called with this in verse 3 through 5. So as we see these pronounced blessings, a couple of things we have to note. That this is not Jesus saying, if you do these things, you will be blessed. That's not what he's saying at all in this whole list. What he's saying is, in my kingdom... In this new humanity that I'm creating, this is what's true. You can't earn these things. You don't work for them. You don't try to get into the right position for them. He's like, this is the way things are in my kingdom. And so this is what he says. The poor in spirit are the ones who will receive. The mourners will be comforted. And those who are meek will be brought up. They will be raised up. They will be the inheritors of the earth. Now, look, this was as backwards then as it is now. Because if you notice this progression, there is a progression from this poverty in spirit to mourning over that and what that means to this meekness where you're just, you kind of live, live simplistically in this way that you can't even, you don't care what's wrong with other people because you, you're so aware of what's wrong in here. That there's this progression to it. So let's talk about for just a second what it means to be poor in spirit. And it means that to be a person of God, part of this kingdom, we would think that by definition to be someone who follows God and is a Christian disciple would be someone who is full of spirit and rich in spirit. But it's not. Jesus says that those who are poor in spirit are the blessed in my kingdom. And yet the paradox here is that Jesus sides not with the spiritually together, but with the spiritually bankrupt. With those who look at themselves and who look at the world around them. And all of these things bring them to a place of saying, I don't have anything to bring to the table. I don't have anything to bring. I am literally spiritually bankrupt. And so you come... To God, you come to God in this kingdom with open hands. You don't have anything to give Him. All you can do is receive. Jesus is blessing the spiritually inadequate. His his words are full of grace, saying, It's not the haves who get in my kingdom, it's those who don't have who get. Those who, through their poverty, are brought to mourning and meekness, they have nothing of their own to bring. And Jesus says, In my kingdom, you're blessed. Look, we all love, I don't, I don't know many of you well, but I know that you love the underdog narrative. Um, and Hollywood has been capitalizing on this for as long as Hollywood has been there. It's, it's a narrative throughout history, through, uh, through epic novels and all of this stuff. The idea that the powerless are given power. 
that the poor rise through the ranks and become rich, that the underdog wins. It's, it's what happens in The Biggest Loser, right? Where people who are the societal outcasts in our beauty-infatuated, thinness-driven culture, there's a show that gives them a chance to win. And that's awesome. And if you can hang with it till the last episode, you will cry. It's amazing watching this. It's the same reason why some of you cried during Seabiscuit, and it's about a horse. <laughs> but you cried. It wasn't supposed to win, and it won, and it's amazing. And the reason we love that stuff is because we were created in God's image. And there's whether or not you're a Christian or not, there's a part of you that knows that that is at the heart of the world. It's at the heart of who you are that you want that kind of stuff to be true. And Jesus here is saying, it is true. Wherever I am ruling and reigning, that is true. The poor in spirit are the blessed. And Jesus here is pricking our heart, telling us that things can be like that for you. So who are the low and the poor in spirit and the mourners in our day? Who is this? It's anyone who understands that you're absolutely helpless without God's help. You're helpless. Now, there's some commentators and scholars look at this and they, they say it's actually just, Luke actually just says, blessed are the poor. And there's really something to that because people who are physically, tangibly poor, they sense their, their poverty like, like most of us here in this room, all of us here in this room, probably will never sense in our lifetime. We're privileged. We have stuff. And so we really don't know what it's like to have nothing. And so there's that dynamic that maybe the poor in our world have an advantage over some of us. And so we really have to try and get at what Jesus means to be poor in spirit here. So who, who is this? Who gets this? Who can be included in this blessing, this blessedness? Well, it cuts across all lines. It's for liberals and it's for conservatives. It's for people who have grown up in the church and it's for people who are hearing this stuff for the first time. It's for people who are straight and it's for people who struggle with same-sex desires. There are, no, there are no prerequisites to feeling and knowing and sensing your poverty before God. Anybody can do it. Anybody can come to the end of the rope and say, God, I, I don't have enough. I don't have anything that I can bring you and tell you and ask you to be happy with me for. Because everything I've done, even the good things, were for selfish motivations. To try and get others to see me so that they'll love me. But here's who it's not for. It's not for anyone who comes to a place where you or I can look back or down on someone else and wonder why they haven't come as far as we have. You know, what's the deal? I wonder why, wonder why he or she doesn't have it as together as I do. I wonder why they're not as engaged in reading the Bible or praying or these things that I do. You can be sure that if those are the kind of thoughts that go through your mind throughout the day, that if you're constantly feeling yourself looking down or kind of back at others who you've left in your wake, friends, you are not poor in spirit. You are rich in your spirit. And there is a pride that is welling up in you that ought to be checked 
And that Jesus here is saying, look, if that continues in your life, you are close, if not already, out of the kingdom. (laughs) And so if that's you, you ought to repent of it and confess it and say, that's ugly. God, humble me. Make me meek. Help me to see my sin in a fresh way so that I might mourn over it and hate it and want to be changed and be different. So what that means is that Christians, those who follow Jesus, His disciples, we ought to be the most humble, the most gracious, the least judgmental people of anyone on this campus and in this world. And I don't know that we're doing that well at this. And I throw myself in the boat with you. But the moment we're prideful and we look down on others, we've, we've... failed to get our own poverty in spirit. And Jesus calls us out of that. And he calls us to the blessedness of seeing that. So before we go on, let's just talk for just a second about how hard this is. Of how freaking brutal this is to actually believe and embrace and try and live out. How hard it is to believe the kingdom is true. Because we live in a culture, look, and you're at a university, you're at a university which is relentless in its effort to sell you a narrative of success that just skips along from achievement to achievement, like you just keep hitting the crest of the wave and you never go down the trough. And so what we do is we try and order our life and construct our world in such a way that that we just ride from entertainment to joy to entertainment to blessing to happiness and all this stuff, and we pursue all of those things at the cost of never sitting still with who we are. This is why, look, this is why our unquenching desire for entertainment can be so dangerous. I hope that you all realize that we live in the most entertainment-driven culture in the history of the world. You have more opportunities for pleasure and joy at your fingertips than anyone ever in the history of the world. And it's dangerous. Let's just call it for what it is. It's dangerous. Because what it means is that even though you're extremely lonely, you can always go turn on Netflix and watch three more episodes and laugh a little bit and feel like things are okay. And you never have to enter into that that poverty of spirit. Even though you're struggling and you're devastated that your parents are getting divorced, you can just go online and shop a little bit. And you can go buy something which makes you feel good for a little while. You can go up to Utica Square and go to Gap or Banana. It doesn't matter. You can make yourself feel good for a little while and ignore these things around you, the things that aren't right in the world. Even though you know you should stop hooking up with people randomly or your boyfriend or girlfriend, even though you know you should do that and that when you wake up in the morning you feel empty and used or whatever it is that you feel, you keep running back to it because it's that great sense of acceptance and approval by somebody. Or you just run to RUF or you go to church, you do something to make you feel good and to hide and to mask the guilt and the emptiness and the shame that's there. And so, friends, we struggle with what to do with this poverty of spirit, this spiritual bankruptness that Jesus says is, is, a, is a mark of those who are part of His kingdom. So the only way to understand what Jesus came to do is to stop running from our poverty, to stop running from your mourning, to stop trying to make everyone around you think that you have everything together and managing people so that they'll think that, and just to sit there. 
to take a minute and just feel the weight of how things are not right with you and in you. Of how you do things that you know you shouldn't do or that you don't want to do, your desires that you wouldn't do them, but you keep doing them. And sit there in that tension. Look at your failures and your inabilities to be what you or others think you should be. Sit in that spiritual poverty and hear the good news from Jesus. Hear His blessing over you and saying, if that is you, if you're willing to go there, then if not already in, you are close to the kingdom. And He goes on, secondly, to say that the ones who need, those who see their need, their poverty, are the ones who have. He looks down and says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Again, Jesus' description of this kingdom life is different from what we know and see. Because in our world, happiness and blessedness and people who are fulfilled are those who never go without. They live in great houses and they drive great cars and they eat great food and they have great kids who dress greatly. All of these things, that's what the world says are the blessed are. Those are the ones who are satisfied in our world. And Jesus says, no. (laughs) Yes, I acknowledge that it looks that way. But in my kingdom, blessed are those who are parched because of their spiritual poverty. Who come and say, I am absolutely thirsty for something good and different to happen to me. I am absolutely hungering. And these analogies are are amazing when we think that hunger and thirst, they don't go away until they're fed or until water is given. They, can, they persist indefinitely. And Jesus says, that's what I'm talking about. I want things to be right in here. I want that righteousness between me and God. But I also long for things to be right out there. And we'll talk about that more in just a second, what that means. Ambrose, who is a church father from the 2nd century, wrote in 151, he said this, As soon as I have wept for my sins, I have begun to hunger and thirst after righteousness. It starts within. And it's this unrequited, unquenchable desire to be made right with God, to be justified and made clean before Him. But it's more than that. It's absolutely more than that. Because Jesus sends that viral spirit into you and says, look, you are my son. Paul says that the spirit testifies that we are sons and daughters of God. But what it does is it takes us out into the world and we can no longer look at the oppressed and the poor the same way. Our hearts long for them. We want better for them. We can no longer look at the people without friends the same way and say, oh, that's that part. I'm going to go sit over here. I'm going to run away from that. Christians move into these things, Jesus is saying. But before we go, Jesus does not say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for blessedness. That it is possible that we confuse this. It is possible that in your mind, when you go to God, you are going to God for His blessings. And some of you, this is borne out, and we can see this in the way that we pray, that our prayers to God are only asking Him to do things for us. God, I've got a test. Uh, It would be really awesome if you could hook me up right now. 
Didn't study last night. <laughs> um, God, uh, will you do this for me? Will you do this for me? Will you do this for me? Will you do... It's this list of asking God to bless us, to bless us. And Jesus is here. That's not what Jesus is saying. That's not a hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's a hunger and a thirst for blessing. And Jesus says, that's not part of this equation. Because here's why Jesus doesn't do this. That if, if all Jesus is in the business of doing is giving us blessings and just giving us everything we ask for, then that would be like a doctor, who, an ER doc, who comes into the surgery room when there's this patient suffering greatly with all these wounds, and he immediately just grabs the stitches and starts sewing them up. And he just bandages them up and sends them on their way. That person's going to die. Because the wounds haven't been cleaned, they haven't been treated, the infection or the potentially infectious things are still in there. So Jesus, hear this, Jesus will not, He will not answer all of your prayers because that would be the meanest thing He could do to you. What He does is He gives you what you need. John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, has wrote a lot of other great hymns. And one of them we sing here sometimes is called, I Ask the Lord. And it's this funny, and, and I guess funny in a way, song about how this, uh, this person goes to the Lord and says, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and hope and all these things. I and mean, that's good. If you look at this person, you're like, dude, you're holy. You want to grow. And the whole, sto- the whole song is about this progression of how God, instead of giving him that thing or giving her that thing, takes him low. And there's a point where it says, He made me feel the hidden evil of my sin. It's like, oh, gee, that that feels good, Jesus. Appreciate that. But you have to understand that even in that, Jesus is being kind to you. He's being gracious to you and merciful to you because He's coming in so that you'll see your spiritual poverty, so that you'll want righteousness, not just blessedness. I was talking on the uh, the phone to a friend last week. Uh, This guy's 55. Um, his wife is in the process of leaving him. It's so sad. So sad. His son has been sick, mentally sick, since junior high. And I know his son well. And he was saying, oh my gosh, he was saying that he hasn't felt that close to God in 30 years. And he also said this, Brent, I am crashing 50 times a day. How can both of those things be true? This man, he gets his poverty. He is struggling the whole day long to believe that God is real and that He's true and that He's for him and all this stuff. And at the same time, there's this sense that I am close and God has me and He's not letting me go. If you hunger and thirst, you're already blessed because you've been made to see your need. And the needy people in God's kingdom are those who are satisfied. So what now? Well, those who have seen their need and been helped and been declared righteous and who now, with that new righteousness, with that virus inside, we move out into the world to seek to bring rightness out there. This next set of Beatitudes talks about the helped people becoming the helper, the helpers. It says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Those who are part of Jesus' kingdom begin to turn outward. 
And they begin to look at the things around them and say, I can't not go there. I can't not enter into that situation. I can't not go help that person or those neighbors. And it also means that we deal with what's inside of us. We deal with that log in our own eye that Jesus is going to talk about without going to our neighbors and saying, look, let me, let me work at that speck in yours. That there's a self-realization of who I am, not just how, how bad they are. And so we can move to people in humility. Someone says it this way, the first four Beatitudes, in the first four, we're salted by God, that God works on us. And in these next three right here in, in verse 7 through 9, that we begin to be the salt. That God sends us out into the world to be salt and light in this world. In other words, from that low place, Jesus lifts people up and He cleans our wounds. He bandages us and then He sends us out. I've um, been watching a lot of football in the last few days. <clears throat> and this is what happens. When a lineman or somebody who's really important to the fabric of the offense or defense, when a lineman goes out, inevitably probably holding a knee or maybe they got rolled up on their ankle, they go over to the sideline and the coach does not say, hey, you're good, just why don't you take the rest of the game off. They sit him down on the bench or they take him off to the, uh, to the locker room and they get out a shot and they say, boom. They throw cortisone in their knee or in their ankle, whatever it is, and they send them back out because cortisone will mask whatever's there. And it will do it for a little while, right, Daniel? That's right. They send them back out. And they go back out and they play and they finish and that's exactly what Jesus is doing. That those who are brought in, He bandages us, He cleans us, and He sends us right back out into the world so that we can bring help and healing. So Christians do that. We, we seek to spread the good news of the kingdom. Christians are not people who have had a ticket punched by God, who have responded maybe one time at church and walked down an aisle or been baptized and prayed a prayer and who do nothing for the rest of their life and show up at the end of time with the great judgment before God and say, oh yeah, let me, God, let me find that ticket. Where is it? Oh yeah, I did that one summer. He's going to say, I didn't know you. I didn't know you. A disciple, a follower of Jesus, someone who is changed from the inside out. There is no sidelines. And lastly, it says the helpers will be hated. Verse 10 and 12, all the way to the end, Jesus' kingdom is upside down. Because He's telling the people in His kingdom that you will be persecuted and hated by the world. It's upside down, y'all, because we expect that the better someone is, the more like Jesus that someone is becoming, the, the more people will like them. But it didn't happen with Jesus. He was perfect and people hated Him. And the more you seek to live after righteousness, the more people will hate you. Let's, let's make this very applicable for just a sec. This means that if I'm part of a conversation where we're talking about people behind their back, and I stand up or I speak up and say, hey, y'all, we, we can't do this anymore. That's not kind. People are going to hate you. People will hate you for that because they'll feel guilty. And they won't invite you to stuff. They won't want you to be around them anymore. As a Christian, we're commanded to submit to the laws of our land regardless of what we think about them. And that means that if you're underage, you're not supposed to be drinking. You know, that feels petty and you think the law is arbitrary. I didn't make it. I, I, my thing is stupid too. It doesn't matter. 
So that means that in that social situation, Jesus is calling you to be different. And you might be ostracized and you might be unpopular and people may wonder what you're doing. People hated Jesus too. As a Christian, when you tell a guy or girl you're not going there, when you're you're not going there, when you're not going to take clothes off, when you're not going to do that next thing that you know you shouldn't do because Jesus calls us to a life of purity, to flee sexual immorality, and when that person looks at you and says, what's wrong with you? We're done, or I'm breaking up with you. You have to know that they rejected Jesus too. And you're just following your king into the kingdom of heaven. There's a girl that I know here at TU who's a Christian, and she has a great tattoo on her arm, which says, a stranger in a strange land. And that's exactly what Christians are. That's exactly what disciples of Jesus are. We are weird. We will look weird. We will do weird things that the world does not understand because it looks so backwards and it looks so upside down. And in that moment, you are so blessed by God. You are so rich in Him. You are so accepted and loved and approved of far more than anything in this world could offer you. And Jesus says that when that comes into you, when that seed is planted in your heart, when it begins to grow, that the things that you thought would satisfy in this world, they begin to pale. And those things which once seemed so stupid, which seemed so naive, those things become right and beautiful. Because it's upside down. And life in Jesus' kingdom is right side up. We just don't see it completely yet. But one day it's coming and we'll see it fully. And He's calling us to trust Him now that this is the right way. Let's pray.